Please open in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah found in your Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 63. Just a moment, I'll begin reading from Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7. So as you open in your Old Testament, you get to the Psalms, keep going to the right, and you'll come to a very large book, the book of Isaiah, named after the author of that book, the prophet Isaiah chapter 63, I'll begin reading. Uh, in verse 7. Before we read the passage, a short story, which I think positions us to read this um, with fresh, fresh anticipation and faith. Um, and also uh, an announcement. Uh, as of about 4 o'clock today, Linda and I will officially be empty nesters. So if Jacqueline's watching, we'd love you dearly. Um, but uh, she is moving to the community of Somerville, uh, and um, yesterday was her move day, and you can hear about those details over a cup of coffee um, at another time. But I noticed that one of the things that Linda made sure that Jacqueline took with her, um, which would be not what I would have sent with her, so ask yourself the question, when you're sending your son or daughter out into the world and they're leaving, uh, your nest, and they're now going to be uh, living in another. What do you send with them? Um, and she sent with them, among other things, a little tool bag with tools in it. Isn't that interesting? Now, that would not be on my short list of things that I need to take with me. And I noticed in this little tool box with tools in it, there were tools that you are probably familiar with. I've never seen them before, like a hammer uh, and Allen wrenches um, and um, some uh, screwdrivers. I mean, I, I could barely name these things. Uh, but as I carried it in, I looked and said, hmm, apparently when you move to a new location, tools are important. And as you expect, Jacqueline's toolbox, unlike your toolbox, is this little, almost like lunchbox-sized toolbox versus this ginormous red thing that, you know, is filled with tools that, that I have one of those. Well, Linda actually has our toolbox, and uh, <laughs> I don't know what's in that thing. The Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, has given you a tool, and he's putting it in your hands and my hands, and it's a tool that Pastors and leaders and churches have used and wielded on many occasions when they long for awakenings. Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 7. This is God's word to us. May he use this in our hearts and lives as a tool in his kingdom purposes today. Excuse me, Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. 
in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But, verse 10, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you, you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you have been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? 
Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Thanks be to God for his word to us. Let's pray. Lord, reading these words stirs within us fresh desires to pray for new awakenings from above. We do pray with the prophet, and we join our voices to those who have prayed these very words in the past, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We would be those, Lord, who remember you in your ways. We would be those, Lord, who pray for your ways. Have your full way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you remember the first day of the first job that you worked. We have some individuals that are retiring after a long work career in this church, and so I bet you remember the first day of the job you're retiring from. But I wonder if you remember the first day of your job that you currently hold. Take a second, think about that first day. Imagine if this was your first day of work, May 10th, 1940. May 10th, 1940. On May 10th, 1940, Germany invaded Belgium, the Netherlands, and in a matter of weeks, France. And France was defeated. And all that remained on at least the European continent was the little island nation of England against the blitzkrieg of the German invasion. And of course, that person I'm referring to whose first day of work was greeted by the news that Germany has invaded and conquered would be Winston Churchill. That was his first day of work. In his first year as prime minister, 45,000 civilians of the United Kingdom would be killed from aerial bombings as the German invasion preceded what was predicted to be a land assault with deadly bombardments. Churchill quickly recognized that the only way to win a decisive victory against this invasion, if Great Britain was to survive was all, was he had to get the United States involved. Much of what he said, much of what he did, was with an eye towards the United States and its then president, Franklin Roosevelt. But it's 1940, and American involvement in a war in Europe is very unpopular. Of course, after June 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor occurred, Germany declared war on the US, and that in a sense settled the matter. But in September of 1940, Winston Churchill had a visitor from the United States, one of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's trusted advisors and cabinet secretary, 
Harold Hopkins was there to survey the damage and to convey his support for Great Britain and to communicate that we would begin to supply through Lend-Lease Acts and other means the munitions they needed to survive the onslaught. On this day, there was a meeting held in Glasgow and various speeches were being made. And at one point, Mr. Hopkins stood up and staring at Mr. Churchill said, I suppose you wish to know what I am going to say to President Roosevelt upon my return. And there was just a hushed silence in the room. Harry Hopkins knew his Bible. And he quoted one verse from the Bible. And he looked right at Churchill when he said it. He was reading from the King James. Whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. And thy God, my God. And then he added, even to the end. Ruth chapter 1. And Churchill wept. His personal physician said later, he knew exactly what Secretary Hopkins was saying to him and to the nation he led. Those words in the physician's recollection seem like a rope to a drowning man. The U.S. would help. Their rescue would arrive. It would be a turning point in their relationship and in the outcome of the war. Isaiah 64 is a rope offered to the people of God promising rescue. When, in the language of, of this passage and a review of the historical situation, it appears that there is little hope as we recalled Israel's history in these verses, and I won't take time as a lengthy passage to go through this, Isaiah is all too aware of their history. The Lord, he says, verse 7, has shown his steadfast love in calling them into a relationship with Yahweh and delivering them out of their slavery to Egypt and promising them, even bringing them into his promised land. But verse 10, they rebelled. They grieved his spirit. They in time became his enemy, and he, it says, was opposing them. And so Isaiah, beginning in verse 15, begins to express within his inner parts, verse 15, that, that the Lord would show compassion, that he would remember his people, that he would remember that he is the father to his people, that he is, verse 16, the redeemer from of old, 
that even though, verse 17, Lord, you have made us wander from your ways and hardened our heart, return to us for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. And then like a crescendo in a, in a great musical orchestral piece, verse 1 of 64 thunders, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah 66 is a tool. It's a tool given to you and I that we would learn how to pray for a greater awakening. A tool that would teach us how to pray for a greater awakening. And so my goal this morning is not only to remind us that everyone needs hope, not just Winston Churchill, when your back is up against the wall, you need hope and I need hope, too. But that the Lord in his kindness gives us passages like this to take us by the hand and lead us in a way that we would pray for Awesome things we do not expect, verse 3. Awesome things we do not see, verse 3. An awakening. The year was 1712, and a group of pastors and leaders gathered in Boston. These New England colonists have watched with their very eyes how the churches that they were shepherding, once vibrant with spiritual fervor due to the persecution they experienced from the countries that they fled from had now become complacent, sluggish, indifferent to spiritual matters. Their first love, if not gone, had become a much lesser love. Their the prosperity of the early colonies and their security from outside invasion had, had, had led, in the words of pastors and leaders, to a concern that, that New England was lost. And so they prayed, and they recorded what they prayed. They prayed from the pages of Isaiah 63 and 64. And they kept praying. And they started preaching what they prayed to their congregations. Even as they saw no change. And then, of course, in 1721, nine years later, inexplicably, suddenly, a great awakening began. A British minister named George Whitfield arrived in Rhode Island. He was unknown at the time. But as he rode his carriage up Route 1 or his horse up Route 1 and stopped in different spaces and places, both church settings like this, but also in open fields, and preached the simple gospel, Christ died for your sins in ways that these church members and non-church colonists could understand, an awakening occurred. Nominal Christians, that is, Christians in name only, were converted under the ministry of the gospel. It was astounding. When he arrived in Boston, 
They had him preach at the common. But that was following a meeting at First Boston Church or First Church in Boston where it was so crowded as the the wood began to creak and people began to panic in this packed house that the the balcony was going to collapse. People began running out of the building screaming that there was going to be as as Whitfield kept preaching and finally said, Mr. Whitfield, would you please take the message out to the common? And he did. No one died that day. I guess the deacons fixed the creaky planks in the church. He preached for two weeks at the common. Before it was all said and done, tens of thousands of people were riveted. But it didn't didn't stop with Whitfield, a stoic, erudite intellectual named Jonathan Edwards who would read his sermons, not conversationally share them in Northampton, was reading his sermons one day as he did faithfully each Sunday and an awakening occurred in his congregation. People who were thought to be Christians were suddenly coming alive by the visitation of the Spirit. And they were converted. Some were, some were repentant as they had become half-hearted or compromised or they'd lost their first love to a much smaller love, Christian. And the great awakening of the 1700s went on for 10 years. 10 years. It was like, it was like something started that couldn't be contained not because of the giftedness of those ministers, though those ministers were faithful, and thank God they were fruitful in that, but because the Lord visited his people. I'm sure you notice this passage you read says more about the Holy Spirit than any other passage in the Old Testament. Because when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, it was through the Spirit's activity, Isaiah prophesies, that he did that. Let me just draw your attention to one mention of the Spirit's work here, just to, just to encourage you to go back and see how often the Spirit is mentioned. And the reason I draw your attention to that is because clearly during these great awakenings, it wasn't only the truth of God that was being proclaimed, and it wasn't only the faithfulness of those men and those preachers who were sharing it, but the Spirit of God moved in a way that changed hearts. Do you see that? Look with me at verse verse 10. It says in verse 10 that Israel rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Verse 11. And then Isaiah remembered days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Hmm. And then as this awakening comes, as Isaiah's prophesying at verse 14, like livestock, what a beautiful picture. They go down into this lush valley, and it's the Spirit of the Lord who gives them rest. I could say more. I think my first point is already made, but I'll say it. It's simply this. It's really the main point of the message. 
but a greater awakening is something we must pray for. And if Isaiah 66 doesn't stir my heart to pray more for it, pray for me, and I'll pray for you. A greater awakening is something to be prayed for. And yet we saw last week in Psalm 85, and we could go elsewhere, that it is the heart of God to do this. We are not overcoming reluctance in God to be a God of awakenings. It's his heart. He delights to show his steadfast love. How else is it that we're sitting here believing this stuff? It must be. We are the descendants of people who were awakened before us. Our churches are the offspring of churches that were awakened before us. Yet, most awakening literature today is out of print. I could name authors who crossway when they publish a book immediately sell 100,000 copies, but their books on revival and awakening, I have to contact someone like in a relics museum in interior Montana. Can you ship me that book? It's as if the modern day Christian either doesn't believe or doesn't see the need for a greater awakening. But Isaiah 64 and 65 puts a tool in our hands to not only help us see the need, but but train us in this is what we need to be praying for. So ask yourself this question as we turn to the second point. I'm asking myself this too. These are my first two application questions, Jim. Do you long for God to come down and awaken you? Start with yourself. I know on a bad day, I'm longing for God to come down and awaken Linda. And I know on a really bad day, because she's humbler than me, she's praying for God to come down and awaken me. But that's not what I'm asking you. Do you long for God to awaken you? Because Isaiah, who is full of the Holy Spirit, and in some ways a Christ-like figure, is saying to you and me, I long for you to long for me to awaken you. And Jim told us this morning in our call to worship, he's near to each one of us. He's not far away. It's the mediator of a better covenant. He's right here. And then how is, how is Isaiah 66 stirring in you a deeper desire to pray for awakening today? Maybe it is to pray first for yourself, but also to pray for your spouse. Maybe it is to pray for your coworker after you pray for yourself. Maybe it is to pray for your neighbors after you pray for yourself. Maybe it is to pray for a church after you pray for yourself. But that is the point, is not simply that you can understand what Isaiah 66 says, but there's something of Isaiah 66 that, like my daughter's toolbox, You take out and you assemble the bed. Is that what she did with those tools? And you hammer those things into the drywall and you ratchet whatever that thing was she was ratcheting because she was given tools when she moved into Somerville. We've been given tools. 
of course, Isaiah's prayer was answered. And that's why you and I are here. That's why I'm standing here, not as a pastor, but as someone who, more keeping to my identity, is singing those songs of amazing grace from Roth, because God answered this prayer of Isaiah's with an exclamation point in such a way that it, from greater to lesser, bolsters my faith, encourages my heart. Lord, if you did that, I can certainly pray for me and others to be awakened because if you did that, which nobody, right? That's what he said in verse four, from of old, no one has heard, no one perceived. In other words, no one expected this, you did it. That word rend, that's why we go to men's study in Isaiah. We see these words and we pull them out and we go, what, what is that? What's that doing there? That's used twice in your New Testaments, I'm told, by the scholars in the earliest gospel, Mark. And it says in Mark 1, when Jesus was baptized and he's before John the Baptist, that the heavens were rend open, rent open, split, torn, and the Spirit of God descended and rested on Christ. At his commissioning, the anointed Messiah, the promised Redeemer, God answered Isaiah's prayer that he would come down, and he came down. The Spirit, whose role is celebrated in 64 and 63, comes down and rests on the Messiah and remains on him as he begins his gospel ministry. And then at the end of Mark's gospel, at the end, Rend makes another appearance in what is a very abbreviated account of Jesus' death and resurrection. And I hope I wrote this down. I think it's Mark 14, but you can, you can check, not only me, but check as you look it up, Christ's dying breath, he, he gasps and says, it is finished. He dies, and the temple veil is what? Rent open. The temple veil is torn apart. The temple veil is split. Why? Because heaven is coming down through the person and work of Christ. Mark's claim in his gospel couldn't be clearer. Isaiah's prayer has been answered in the person and work of Christ. The veil which was torn symbolized when it was hung, we didn't have access to God in his presence, but now through the finished work of Christ and his ascendant resurrection and his present meteorship where we are in him and he is in us and he intercedes, we have not only access, we have a new identity. We are his children. We are not only justified, praise the Lord, that we have been gifted with his righteousness, but we have been brought into the family. And that grips me. And that should grip you because it took a renting of a, 
a, a cloud in heaven, if you will, which symbolized the spirit being there, not here, and a renting of Christ's flesh on the cross to have the veil rent that I would pray for awakening because I, we, have access to our heavenly Father. Years 1950, Harold Ockengage, the pastor of Park Street Church. Still an evangelical church, although I'm sure not everyone in this room agrees with everything they're teaching. I don't agree with everything they're teaching, even though they're still heralding gospel, and they don't agree with everything we're teaching, so we'll just agree to disagree and love one another. But he invited this young Baptist preacher, uneducated, with a southern twang, come and preach at Park Street. And his name was Billy Graham. Now, you may not like Billy Graham. My dad heard the gospel for the first time at Madison Square Garden under Billy Graham. And I didn't like him either until then. I said, I like Billy Graham a lot, Dad. (laughs) Did you hear what he said? He had a simple message, like Whitfield. Christ dies for sinners. But it wasn't his pronunciation. Because then they did something which Akengay got permission to do, which no one expected. They said, we're going to take the service out onto the Boston Common, like Whitfield did generations ago. And nobody's going to come but Billy. I want you to preach the same message. And on the first day, a few hundred milled around in the Boston Common. On the second day, it grew to a, th- a thousand. And on the third day, it tripled. And on the fourth day, it was now 3,000. And on the fifth day, it grew to... And it went on for like two or, two or three weeks. And the people who were coming back, right, aren't coming back because they just saw Avatar 2 and they've got to now go see the movie because don't you know, it's just immersive reality and this is the best we can do, which uh, that's not a movie. I just haven't seen it, but that's what everybody's talking about. They came back because they had been awakened. They were Christians in name only. And they were hearing something in the words that were spoken, not Graham's voice, but they were hearing the Spirit of God. It's as if he's standing in the doorway and Christ is the door and the light is on and Christ is saying, enter through me and it's alive and it's real. And they, they moved towards him and they were converted. And now, and now you've got an awakening in Boston in the 50s. Because a church in Boston prayed for it. And God came. Second point, when we're in trouble, we need to remember God and what he has done. Harold Ockengay remembered what God had done in Boston in the 1700s. And he saw Boston and he saw New England in the 50s and said, we are lost We are spiritually goners. Lord, have mercy. He probably preached Isaiah 64. And God heard their prayers. Verse 4 and 5. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Boy, that's worth underlining, isn't it? 
who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. So as we're waiting on the Lord and we're praying, we're remembering, verse 5, what the Lord has done in the past, both scripturally, certainly, the story of the Bible, but in your life and mine too, what God, when God delivered us from our sin and rescued us from his judgment and brought us into a relationship with himself and has, through many dangers, toils, and snares, as we just sung, continued to lead us forward. Verse 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Verse 7, yet there's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us, made us meld in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, look what Isaiah does. You are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not your iniquity forever, our iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Boy, when our backs are up against the wall, we not only need to remember God and what he has done, last point, we never remember who we are as we make known our requests to God. And Isaiah says, even as he acknowledges, we sin, verse 5. He includes himself in that. We are your children. You are our father. You made us. We are the clay. You are our potter, verse 8. Come down again. When we remember who we are, we make known our requests to God. When we are in trouble and we, we, we need and we choose to remember God and what he has done, we make known our requests for God. So question as we apply this and I turn to close. When I am discouraged, when I grow weary, Do I find it hard to remember what God has done in the past? I do. I do. And so I need faithful rememberers in my life. People who remember for me, beginning with Linda, what God has done in the past. Because when I'm weary and when I'm discouraged, Scripture says, I tend to forget what God has done in the past. Do you have a faithful rememberer? Does it mean the past is all sunshine and balloons? It does mean that God in his fatherly mercy and care still cared for you. When you are discouraged and weary, do you remember your justification in Christ? 
I love how it was framed for me recently in that story of Esau and Jacob. That when Isaac loses his sight, how does he differentiate his two sons? Right? He's got a great, he's got those great olfactory nerves in his nose. Isaac must have had a huge schnoz. Can't see, but he can smell what Esau smells like. He's been out in the field, right? Whatever the field smells like. I don't know what that smells like, but he's been out in the field and Jacob's been in the kitchen, so he smells more like the kitchen. And so when he wants to know which son's before him, when he can't see, he says, come close, let me smell you. When God invites you close to him, do you know who he smells, if I can borrow the analogy? He smells Christ's righteousness. It's not because God's blind. It's because grace is real. The gospel is free. The righteousness of Christ is complete, and you're not adding to it. Isn't that good news? But when I'm weary and discouraged, I can forget that. I can forget I've been delivered. I can forget my redemption. I've been delivered from the penalty of sin, and the power of sin has been broken. It's still influencing me. It tempts me. It's at war within me. But my redemption is decisive. I've been given a new identity, a new heart, a new spirit, a new ability to fight it imperfectly. And Christ has said, I will finish what I have begun when I'm discouraged and I'm weary. Do I remember my redemption? And lastly, do I remember my adoption? Isaiah remembers their adoption. You are our father. We deserve disinheritance, but Lord, you are the potter. We are the clay. Forgive us and rend the heavens and come down because we are going to pray for a greater awakening. Last question. How can we be both one who waits and prays for awakening as well as a reminder to others of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. You are that crossway. You do do that. Let's continue to do that, and let's have the pages of Scripture like Isaiah 64 and 5 stir within us a fresh desire. I'm thankful for the story of Harry Hopkins and FDR. I have relatives that were British, and they thought their way of life was about to be extinguished. How much more? We've been given more than a rope. We've been given more than a verse, as beautiful as Ruth is. We've been given a relationship with Christ through faith in him and him alone. He, he is the God of new beginnings. He is the God of fresh awakenings. And this culture and your circumstances are no match for it, then why, friend, why aren't we praying this way? Let's pray this way. And may God, through his spirit, answer those prayers so that we will be those who can testify again. We serve a God of great awakenings. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that our rescue did arrive in time. It was a turning point in world history. When you came, Lord, yes, the heavens were torn open as the Spirit descended. When you died, Lord, the temple curtain was torn in two, signaling a new day is dawn through your death and resurrection. And time and time again in history, we see that the the God in whom we worship and serve is, is active still today. And so we pray, Lord. We pray with Isaiah. We pray with the psalmist that you would both first awaken us. Awaken us more deeply than we would even be aware of. Stir within us fresh courage and boldness and faith and confidence that you will do this again. Lead us, Lord, to, to wait patiently. As it says, Lord, as we remember you, you meet with those who remember you and wait upon you. Sustain us in our waiting, Lord. But then, Lord, we pray, answer our prayers for ourselves and for our family members and for our communities and for our church. Answers our prayer on the basis of one claim alone, the righteousness of Christ. And it is that, Lord, that we place our hope for the conversion of those we pray for, for the revival of churches and for the glory of your kingdom, the righteousness of Christ's name alone. Forgive us for thinking we deserve anything and bolster within us a fresh confidence that when you move, you move because Christ is the God of great awakenings. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's stand.